many of us, love stories with a twist in the plot. Just when, you, just when you thought the story was going one way, something happens that changes how you understand the story, leaving you stunned and then wanting more at the end of the story. The classic example of this is the Bruce Willis film, The Sixth Sense. Willis plays a child psychologist named Malcolm Crow, and one of his patients is a young boy who can see and speak to dead people, if you remember that line in the movie. The psychologist initially thinks the patient is delusional and considers dropping him, but out of concern for him, he takes up this case. As the story develops, we come to find out why the psychologist and the boy strike up such a deep relationship. And it's revealed that a key element in the story has been left out that explains everything. And when it's revealed at the end, it completely alters our understanding of the story. This is why we often want to go back and we want to re-watch the movie because now we're seeing it with new eyes. And no, I will not give you the ending to that movie. You'll have to watch it yourself. Well, over the next four weeks, we're going to see a similar twist in the life of the prophet Jonah. A key element to the story that's left out that ends up in the end making sense of why Jonah's running from the Lord. And that, and that ingredient doesn't just expose Jonah's heart, it actually exposes God's own heart. And so if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. You can find it on page 774 in the red seatback Bible there in front of you. While you're turning there in your Bibles, I want to get you acquainted with this well-known yet often misunderstood book. The book of Jonah is situated among the minor prophets in the Old Testament. These prophets were certainly not minor in their significance, but in the length of their message. However, Jonah is quite unique among the prophets. Rather than focusing on the prophet's message, the story focuses on the prophet himself and the hard lesson that he must learn about the God that he serves. Jonah is also unique because nowhere else do we see the Lord actually calling an Old Testament prophet to go and preach his message to the nation he's preaching against. <laughs> we don't get that. The book itself is a literary masterpiece, focused not so much on a great fish, but instead on a great God and the compassion that he has toward all of his creatures. Notice how this book lays this out. We're really given two episodes with two scenes. In chapters 1 and 2, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And then these Gentile, Gentile sailors are saved. And then in chapter 2, what happens? Jonah prays to the Lord. In the second half of the book, in chapters 3 and 4, we see a similar thing. The word of the Lord goes to Jonah a second time. Gentile Ninevites are saved. And then in chapter 4, what's Jonah doing? Praying to the Lord. And so the book is broken into halves. And in breaking it up that way, the Hebrew author, quite possibly Jonah himself, I do think that there's a good possibility that this book is autobiographical. The author places his central point in the center of the book. We see it in chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs 
to the Lord. That's the message. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not dependent upon nor determined by man, but solely belongs to God. Only God can save sinners, and he saves whomever he wills. Why does he do this, though? Why does he do this? We learn in chapter 4, verse 2, that it's because he is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That is God's heart behind his will of salvation. This is the point of the book of Jonah. The Lord is teaching Jonah the hard lesson that he and the salvation that he gives is not limited to nor the exclusive property of just Israel. And in chapter 1, we see Jonah's response to that very reality. So look with me there at Jonah chapter 1. And listen as I read. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode harder to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, 
O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The main idea for Jonah chapter 1 is this. Fleeing the will of the Lord is foolish. It is foolish because the mercy of the Lord is relentless. Fleeing the will of the Lord is foolish because the mercy of the Lord is relentless. And I I think the text highlights this really in two ways, which serve as our two points this morning. The text is focusing upon God's rebellious prophet, point number one, God's rebellious prophet, and point number two, God's relentless pursuit. I think it's focusing upon those two very things, God's rebellious prophet and God's relentless pursuit. So point number one, God's rebellious prophet. The story begins like we would expect with the book of the prophets. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah is a prophet of God. And God's prophets were his servants who were set apart for a unique purpose of declaring his will to his people. Jonah had a special calling before the people of God. He was one who actually received the word of the Lord, which is the will of the Lord for his people. This isn't the only time in the Old Testament that we actually hear of Jonah. 2 Kings 14.25 identifies Jonah as the 8th century B.C. prophet from the village of Gath-Hefer in the northern tribe of Israel. He was a prophet under the reign of King Jeroboam II, which would have put him prophesying between 786 and 746 B.C. And this is a good reminder that Jonah is referred to as a historical figure and not a, his, not a fictional character. Jesus himself refers to Jonah as such in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. This story is not a fable, but a historical narrative with the aim to teach us about the character of God. That's the point of it. In 2 Kings 14.25, we're told that Jonah prophesied that the border of Israel would actually be restored from their enemies under the reign of King Jeroboam II. And that prophecy was fulfilled. Why? Because the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. The Lord had compassion on his people. From what we can tell, Jonah seems to have had a successful ministry. What he prophesied came true, which was the mark of a true prophet of God. And now the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Up until this point, no Israelite prophet had actually been sent to a pagan nation to preach against it. But here we see the will of the Lord is for Jonah to go and proclaim judgment against Nineveh because of its evil. But this nation wasn't just any nation. It was a notorious enemy of the people of God. Nineveh, which is located in modern-day Mosul, Iraq, was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It was the center of its military power. It was known for its brutality, 
Just to give you a sample, one scholar quoting sources from that period writes this, In a stone pillar, one Assyrian ruler boasted of nobles he flayed. He reported, 3,000 captives I burned with fire. I left no one hostage alive. I cut off the hands and feet of some. I cut off the noses, ears, and fingers of others. The eyes of numerous soldiers I put out, and maidens I burned as a holocaust. Later in 722 BC, the Assyrians would capture the northern kingdom of Israel and actually take them into exile and then repopulate their land with foreigners. The entire book of Nahum is one prophecy declaring God's wrath against the Ninevites because of their wickedness. To put this into perspective, Jonah walking into the streets of Nineveh and declaring God's judgment against it is like a Jewish rabbi walking up to Auschwitz concentration camp and telling them to stop doing what they're doing. You get the point. For Jonah, Nineveh probably wasn't on his list of best vacation destinations for the summer. It was one thing for him to declare that the borders of his own people would be restored, that God had shown pity to his people. That's one thing. It is quite another to go to a nation that utterly wants to kill you. This would have been the job that no one wanted, that paid little to no money, that had no insurance and no benefits. And so we're not surprised to read in verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, if we were looking at a map, Nineveh would be about 500 miles northeast of Israel. Tarshish, however, was a port city off the coast of Spain, some 2,000 miles in the opposite direction of Nineveh, in the complete opposite direction, and at the end of the known world. By fleeing the presence, or the face, literally the face of the Lord, Jonah was effectively saying, I am done with being your prophet. I would rather give up the privilege of receiving and declaring your word and the intimate fellowship that comes with that than to go to that wicked city. I would much rather give that up. But there was something much deeper at play for Jonah. In chapter 4, verse 2, we get a better idea of Jonah's motives for running. And this is the key element that's left out at the beginning, that's given at the end, that then alters our understanding of the story. Look with me there at Jonah's prayer in chapter 4, verse 2. He says this. He prays this. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah wasn't afraid of losing his life to the Ninevites. He was afraid of God using his life to save the Ninevites. He hated them. He didn't mind God's judging them because they were wicked. He just hated that God's mercy would be set on them. He was conflicted with how God can be both merciful and just, as we saw in our call to worship from Exodus 34. And so Jonah wanted to erect boundaries 
around God's mercy and grace and hoard them off for God's own people. He didn't want that going to their enemies. As one author put it, Jonah was a great nationalist. But God is a great internationalist. And so Jonah's unique problem wasn't the Ninevites. It was God. God's very heart for Jonah's enemy was his motive to flee. The heart of God was reflected in the heart of God's, the heart of God was not reflected in the heart of God's prophet, as it should have been as a prophet of God. And so as God's prophet, Jonah knew God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through his covenant, pe- through his covenant people. He believed that to be true, but he didn't believe it to be good. Or he believed it to be true, but he didn't believe it to be good if it didn't necessarily benefit just him and his people. This is a reminder that Jonah's problem was not intellectual. Jonah's problem was moral. Jonah's plans for his life did not align with God's, and so he ran. Now, you may be thinking to yourself that, well, that might be Jonah's problem. That's not certainly my problem. That's not what I'm dealing with today. But brothers and sisters, we all deal with so-called Jonah syndrome. We all deal with that. The Lord Jesus called us to himself and then he commissioned us to go and make disciples, not just of our own nation or even those that align with us, but to make disciples of all nations. And so ask yourself, where might you be unwilling to go for the sake of Christ? Is it a closed access country overseas or a minority people group in your backyard? Is it a neighborhood or a neighbor, a classmate, or a coworker? Is it a wayward father or mother, a wayward son or daughter, a sibling, a brother, or a sister? Where are you unwilling to go? And then ask yourself, why? Why are you unwilling to go there? Is there any ill will that you harbor against them? Like Jonah, Where are you seeking to live a comfortable, reputable, and easy life? Happy to preach Christ when it benefits us so long as it doesn't cost us anything. Brothers and sisters, we know the command of the Lord to go and to make disciples. And you may even believe it to be good. But do you live as if that's not true and good for you? Do you live as if it's not Where might God's heart for all peoples be exposing your own heart's self-interest and comfort and complacency? It can be seen in the fear of rejection or an uncomfortable conversation. It may be the unwillingness to go to certain places because of inconvenience. Or it may just be that the cares of the world are informing our hearts more than the very heart of God in his word. Friends, God has not called us to a life of comfort or convenience, but to obedience to his commission. And yes, that's going to look like, it's going to look different for each of us in different seasons with varying capacities in those seasons. But the call to go and make disciples of all nations is still present, no matter what season you're in and what capacity you have. It is still there. So what are some steps that you can take? 
Well, number one, I think you can pray. Pray for the Lord to recalibrate your heart to his so that you will receive his word and that your inclination would not be to run but to rejoice at that word. Consider getting equipped by attending one of our equipping classes, such as the one on evangelism taught by Jeremy Muller and, and Cole Pinnock and Chris Shaw. It meets over in the chapel at 9 a.m. Get equipped in evangelism so that you're going to be ready to go and share the gospel and seek to make the most of every opportunity the Lord provides, to look for those opportunities. Consider going with a church plan or a revitalization to get sent out of the church. Now, I know that I am going Lord willing, we are going to plant up in Bentonville later this year. I'm not speaking solely just about ours. But any number of plants or revitalization works that are going out from UBC in the coming years, consider uprooting your life, all the conveniences and the comforts that you have, and consider going to take the gospel to unchurched people in our area. That population growth among the unchurched is growing and it will only continue to do so within our area. Consider what it may look like to go with one of those. And finally, for some of you in here who are considering leaving and going cross-culturally, maybe to closed accessed areas, come and talk to the elders. We want to seek to try to get you equipped in order to send you well to those areas of the world that have no access to the gospel. Consider leveraging your life and sacrificing that for the sake that others may come to salvation. The Lord called Jonah to get up and to go out. But like the prodigal son of Luke 15, Jonah got up to go down, <laughs> away from the Lord's presence. And there would be consequences for that decision. Let's look at a couple of those. So Jonah goes down to Joppa on the Mediterranean Sea, and he finds a ship, he pays the fare for the ride, and then he goes down into it. But running from the Lord is never wise. And the consequence of Jonah's own sin is what? It's a storm. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah thought he was running from a great city, but God had prepared a great storm. And you know it's bad because you read verse 5. Even the mariners are flipping out. These are men who made their livelihood on the sea and they're terrified. This is not like you and I going up to Beaver Lake and trying to navigate a boat on Beaver Lake during a storm. Okay? These guys made their living on the sea and they are flipping out. Even they were terrified by the storm so terrified that they start crying out to their gods to save them and start hurling cargo over the boat to keep it from breaking up. But why? Why was it so terrifying? Because the Lord hurled the great wind like a spear. God chucked that spear into the water and it just began to erupt on the sea. And yet with all of the frenzy up above deck... Where do we find Jonah? He was fast asleep, like a baby, at the bottom of the ship. And yet with all of that, friends, it's a reminder for us that there will be storms in our lives when we're living in disobedience to God. 
Now, that does not mean that every storm or difficulty in your life is a result of sin. It does not necessarily mean that. But this story is a good reminder that your sin will certainly bring difficulty in a storm with it. As one scholar put it, sin sets up strains in the structure of life, which can only end in breakdown. And so right here, the Lord is disciplining Jonah. But there's another lesson here that's a consequence of his disobedience. Jonah is at peace when a storm is raging all around him. Now that's messed up. Notice Jonah's downward trajectory in this text. He went down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the inner part of the ship to lay down. Going down is a euphemism for death. Every step away from the Lord in sin is a step closer to death. Sin comes with a gravitational pull that sucks us down, so far down that we end up being at peace in our sin. We've thrown up the white flag of surrender and are no longer fighting our sin. Sin has seduced us at this point to becoming our master. And the wages of sin is what? It's death. It's death. Brothers and sisters, don't become comfortable and complacent in your sin. We are called to fight and to flee sin. But where do we run when the storm of our sin is raging around us? Where do we run? Well, to get that answer, we must look at another storm on a different sea with a different boat and another man asleep at peace hundreds of years after Jesus, or after Jonah. It would be Jesus. Just run that. Pop the balloon. In Mark 4, as Tamara read just moments ago, Jesus is on a boat. And he's fast asleep in the middle of a storm. And as the storm is raging, Jesus' disciples, like the mariners, are absolutely terrified. It's the same word. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's the same word. They are flipping out, terrified. And so they come to Jesus and they cry out to him, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus arises. He doesn't even say anything to him. I love that. He doesn't even say anything. He just arises and he rebukes the wind. And he says, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. You see, Jonah thought He had peace running from God, but it was only creating a greater storm. Jesus could be asleep in a storm because he could cause that storm to cease. Friends, the only hope of safety that you have in a storm is by running to the one who commands it. Jesus is the only one who can bring peace from the storms of this life. And so turn from your sin And run to him, the one whom the wind and the sea obey. Run to him and receive true and lasting peace. Sadly, though, Jonah just continues running from the Lord and things go from bad to worse. 
And in the rest of the text, I want us to look at another consequence of Jonah's disobedience. It's how his sin affects others. Sin has a splatter effect. It affects others. Notice the contrast between Jonah and the sailors and how it highlights this. Jonah doesn't seem to have a care in the world (laughs) with what is going on while the sailors are calling out to their gods and even calling on Jonah to call out to his God as if they're rebuking him. In verse 9, after Jonah tells the sailors that he is a Hebrew who fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, the men respond in shock and terror that Jonah would run to the sea that God has created. Sin makes you stupid. (laughs) Makes no sense. And you see the irony and the humor in this, in writing this. And these men have more concern for their gods than the prophet of God does for his. The sailors are busy trying to salvage the ship and to discern the reason for the storm. They're calling out to their gods. They're hurling cargo over the ship. They're casting lots to, deter- to determine their problem, which was common ancient Near Eastern practice. And yet Jonah is doing nothing. And when the storm gets worse, Jonah knows it's his fault. And so he tells, him to throw, he tells them to throw him overboard in verse 12. But they won't. They won't do it. They have more concern for Jonah's life than Jonah does for theirs. Do you see the point? Jonah's sin revealed his own self-interest and lack of concern for God, which resulted in a lack of concern for others, which then affected everyone. Sin is like a virus. At first, it incubates, and you don't recognize anything wrong. You could even be at peace in the first stages of the virus. But over time, the the side effects start to get worse, and then it begins affecting others. Friends, private sin has corporate consequences, as it's been said. How you view others will affect how you treat them. No one sins in isolation. That's part of the irony of this story because Jonah thinks that he's fleeing the presence of the Lord, yet God's presence is inescapable. He is spiritually present everywhere at all times. And so we may think that that one look, that one drink, that one word of gossip or slander or sexual innuendo doesn't affect anyone, but it does. Consider sin's collateral damage toward our witness as a church and our life together as a church. It affects our relationships with those outside the church by hindering our prayers for their salvation. And because sin is self-interested, it keeps us from evangelizing the lost. How will our community hear their need to turn from sin if we haven't dealt with our own? It also affects our life together as a church. It hinders us from serving others sacrificially. It affects our worship together because our hearts aren't coming to the Lord in wholehearted devotion. It hinders our prayers for one another because it keeps us from drawing near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, as we learn in Hebrews 10, 22. And so in a moment, when we participate in the Lord's Supper together, we're going to have a time where we're going to confess our sins to the Lord. Use that time to consider any ways in which you may be running from the Lord and confess your sins 
to him with a true heart in full assurance, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Take time to do that and to consider your life in a moment. Brothers and sisters, be warned by the life of Jonah. Fleeing the will of the Lord is foolish. And it's foolish because the mercy of the Lord is relentless. Point number two, God's relentless pursuit. One of the benefits that we have as the reader is that we're actually outside the story and we can see everything that's going on behind the scenes. And what we see is the Lord's hand at work in these events. And early on in this book, we're confronted with this God who has all authority, power, and control. We're confronted with the theme of God's sovereignty and his resolve to get his message to the ends of the earth. And by sovereignty, we mean God's control over all things. That there is not one thing outside of God's control. This includes human sin and it includes faith. And we see this from the get-go. The, Lord, the, uh, the Lord's word comes to Jonah and Jonah wants nothing to do with it. But we know from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verse 11, the word of the Lord shall not return to him empty, but accomplish all that he purposes for it to accomplish. It will succeed in the thing for which he sent it. And what's remarkable is that in knowing that verse to be true, God still uses Jonah anyway. <laughs> what in the world? Why would he still use his prophet? And he goes to extraordinary measures to do so. And we're going to see this all throughout the book, whether that's a fish or a plant. Right here in verse 4, we see that it is a wind that God hurls upon the sea. Jonah ran from the Lord, but the Lord was running after Jonah. And he, says, he doesn't just hurl a wind, but he is also providentially providing the ship for the storm. Not only that, the rebuke of the captain of the ship in verse 6, the lot to fall on Jonah so that his sin would be exposed in verse 7. As we learn in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God doesn't stop there. He causes the wind to pick up in verse 12 so that they aren't able to row back to dry land. He's not letting them get away. And so that the sailors and Jonah end up coming to the end of themselves in recognizing what must be done. God is making his point very clear. And though some of these aren't explicitly attributed to God like others, they're legitimate and reasonable inferences of God's sovereignty. These events weren't random or by coincidence. They were orchestrated by God to teach Jonah and the sailors an important lesson. Now you may be thinking to yourself, you may be thinking to yourself that this just makes God look like an angry, vengeful God. Like he's just out to get people. He just manipulates people according to his will as if he's just moving a bunch of chess pieces around on a chessboard. But that couldn't be further from the truth. And it would be missing the point of the book. We can't rightly understand the sovereignty of God without understanding human responsibility. Sovereignty does not diminish nor deny human responsibility. In fact, it actually upholds it, or else God wouldn't be sovereign over it. You see that? 
Man still makes real choices according to his or her own desires, and they are responsible for their own decisions, while God still sovereignly reigns over those decisions as we see with Jonah. The Bible teaches both the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, and we must uphold both. And to rightly understand the lesson that he's teaching Jonah and these sailors, we must remember that the heart, we must look at the heart really behind God's will. As Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord is a gracious and merciful God. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relentless, relentless, relenting from disaster. Contrary to some seeing God as an explosive and angry God, the Lord is orchestrating these events because he is relentless in showing his mercy. The storm is a severe mercy of God's discipline to bring Jonah to his senses, to wake him up to truths that he otherwise would not see. The Lord wants Jonah to see that his heart of compassion is not only just toward Jonah, but to the nations, even to the Ninevites. And it's that same heart toward the Ninevites that is also set upon Jonah himself. The Lord is giving Jonah what he doesn't want in order to teach him what he needs to hear. And Jonah is learning the hard way that the will of man is absolutely no match for the mercy of God. All of this action on God's part is a very clear reminder that he is not done with his prophet nor the Gentiles in this story. Instead, he is hot on their trail. Look with me at verses 14 through 16, the climax of the story right here. The storm goes from bad to worse. Jonah tells the sailors to throw him overboard, but they don't. And so they try to row back to the land, but fail. Finally, at their wit's end, they don't call out to their gods anymore. They call out to Yahweh. And asking the Lord not to hold Jonah's life against them, they hurl Jonah into the sea, and the sea ceases from its raging. Now, we're not told if Jonah knew that the storm would calm down by throwing him overboard. We're not told how he knew that, is what I mean. We're not told that God actually told Jonah that that would be the case. It's possible that that could happen. Either way, Jonah knew that the only way for these pagan sailors to live would be if he died. And so Jonah sacrificed himself to save them. And the storm ceased, and the men worshipped. The sailors' fear of the storm, in verse 5, had now turned into a holy fear of the Lord, God's covenant name, Yahweh, in verse 16. The sailors were converted. Do you see the irony in all this? God used Jonah's disobedience to show mercy to these pagan sailors. He used Jonah's flight to bring about their fear. Jonah runs from Nineveh so that they won't find mercy, and he ends up in a boat with Gentiles who find mercy. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And yet there is even better news for us, because this, this story right here foreshadows one who is greater than Jonah. 
One who wouldn't run from his mission, but embrace it by leaving all the comforts of heaven in holy submission, in humble submission to the Father's will, by being sacrificed on a cross, plunged under the raging waters of God's wrath, not for his sins, like Jonah, but rather for their sins, for the sins of his enemies once for all time. All for what reason? So that through his death, they might be saved from the wrath to come. Jesus is the one who is greater than Jonah. And friend, if you are here this morning and you are running from God, the Lord is clearly showing you that life outside of him leads to destruction. But by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ as your sacrifice for sin, you can receive God's mercy in salvation right now. You can receive God's mercy today. It belongs to him. You can come to fear the Lord rather than the storms of this life. Turn from your sin and trust in him. And finally, be at peace and let that storm cease. Brothers and sisters, how, though, does the sovereignty of God and his relentless mercy apply to you? How does it apply to you? Well, I think it ought to comfort us. It ought to comfort us. It should bring comfort to your soul because God sovereignly orchestrates all things in your life for your good. We are told that in Romans 8, 28. And how do you know that he's committed to your good? Because he sacrificed his son so that you might live. That's how you know. You know that there is no storm in this life that can separate you from God. You know his love for you in Christ. And so we don't have to go throughout life just second-guessing all the decisions that we make. We can trust him to work everything out for our good, even when it's hard. God is the divine sculptor chiseling out his people into the image of his son. In difficulty, in trials, are just one tool that he uses to do just that. This also teaches us that even your disobedience is used by God for your good. God's grace toward you is no reason to just go on sinning. But it's also a reminder that even your disobedience isn't outside God's loving control of your life. God is never caught off guard or asleep. He is never unaware or surprised by the storms of your life. In fact, it's those very storms that he uses out of love to teach you greater dependence upon him. There is comfort. There is comfort in knowing that he cares and is committed to your good. So committed that it ought to give us assurance knowing that his mercy and grace toward us is relentless. Nothing will come in the way of the Lord finishing his work that he began in you. God has mercy deep for you when your sin plunges you under the currents of his discipline. He has got mercy deep for you. His power is enough to pull you out, and there is no one who is able to snatch you from the Lord's hand, as Jesus tells us from John 5. All of God's promises will come to pass for you. He has promised that. They will all come to pass for you. And so, brothers and sisters, beware of seeking attractive ships in this life that lead you away from the Lord and be comforted by the fact that even in the storms of life, God is relentless 
and his grace and his mercy toward you. Well, every year during the traditional Jewish calendar, Jonah is read at the climactic point of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the point of such a reading on the most solemn day of the year for the Jewish people is to remind God's people of God's forgiveness and mercy in their need of repentance. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Fleeing the Lord, fleeing the will of the Lord is foolish because the mercy of the Lord is relentless. Brothers and sisters, welcome to the gospel of Jonah. Let's pray. Great God, we give praise to you. We know that the storms of our own lives are no match for your mercy. Lord, we pray that by your mercy and grace that we would come to receive the comfort that is in this text, but also to receive the warning that is in this text for all who flee the Lord. Lord, we pray that our own hearts would be inclined to repentance, that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And Lord, that we would also turn from our sin and look to you in your Son, who gave up the comforts of heaven in submission to your will to die for those who had rejected him. Lord, help us to look to Christ and the mercy that is full and deep in him when we are trapped in the storms of our life. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.